Across the Movie Aisle, presented by Bulwark Plus. I am your host, Sonny Bunch, culture editor of The Bulwark. I'm joined, as always, by Alyssa Rosenberg of The Washington Post and Peter Suderman of Reason Magazine. Alyssa, Peter, how are you today? I'm great. Happy to be talking about movies with friends. Uh, first up in controversies and non-troversies, is Carrie Mulligan not attractive enough for the role of femme fatale in Promising Young Woman? Uh, that was Mulligan's incredibly uncharitable read of a review in Variety by Dennis Harvey, which concludes thusly. Quote, Mulligan, a fine actress, seems a bit of an odd choice as this admittedly many-layered apparent femme fatale. Margot Robbie is a producer here, and one could perhaps too easily imagine the role... Uh, might once have been intended for her. Whereas with this star, Cassie wears her pickup bait gear like bad drag. Even her long blonde hair seems a put-on. Still, like everything here, this turn is skillful, entertaining, and challenging. End quote. Uh, after Mulligan complained about this concluding paragraph, Variety, in a pretty shocking move, attached the following apology to the top of the review. Quote, Editor's notes, Variety sincerely apologizes to Carrie Mulligan and regrets the insensitive language and insinuation in our review of Promising Young Woman that minimized her daring performance, end quote. Uh, speaking as an editor and as a critic here, I was both horrified and kind of outraged by what Variety has done. They have taken a longtime freelancer and thrown him under the bus about as hard as they can for a turn of phrase that is at worst awkward uh, and at best kind of accurate, honestly. I, after all, here's what producer Margot Robbie had to say about Mulligan's turn. Quote, uh, I was like, I think I'm who people would expect to be cast in this. Carrie Mulligan, however, is an actress uh, that has this air of prestige around here. She's in period dramas. Throw her in Promising Young Woman and people's minds get blown, end quote. Uh, but the correctness or incorrectness of Harvey's critique isn't really the point here. It's entirely beside the point. The point is that Variety, by apologizing for a review that made a movie star in the midst of an Oscar campaign uncomfortable, uh, has revealed itself to be nothing more than an arm of the award season industrial complex. The point is that no one, from now on, can take a Variety review seriously as a work of aesthetic judgment. Judgment, uh, in my opinion. The, the point, really, uh, is that there has been a noticeable lack of outrage from the people who are always angry about something on film Twitter. Uh, only a handful of folks like Robbie Cullen of The Telegraph and Richard Rushfield at The Yankler have stood up for their colleague who has been thrown to the wolves. Um, whether their silence comes from a fear of losing gigs with Variety or a fear of facing a backlash from progressive activists or because they weirdly agree with Variety's apology is hard to say, but it is deafening and it's I find it I find it pretty, again, outrageous. Uh, Alyssa, you also took issue with Variety's apology, did you not? Yeah, I think it's nuts. Um, I... I don't necessarily agree with Harvey's assessment of Mulligan's performance in the movie or to be specific, I think he misses the point a little bit, right? Cassie's femininity, I think, is very much supposed to be a put on. Um, you see it in the way that she shifts costumes from scene to scene when she goes out hunting these various kinds of guys who she wants to sort of shame and terrify. You know, when she's in the first scene, when she's out with a bunch of finance bros, she is dressed in, you know, a fairly conservative dull suit, the sort of thing that a woman who works in one of those investment firms might wear when she's, you know, going after this sort of sensitive artistic nice guy. She's kind of boho, you know, flowy hair, skirts, etc. When she's targeting um, a guy in the club scene, she's wearing, you know, her hair up in this sort of exaggeratedly high ponytail. She's wearing sparkles. Um, and I think he also kind of misses one of the arguments the movie is saying, which is that you know, picking up an incapacitated woman in the club and taking her home because you think you can have sex with her 
without really having to do much to gain her consent or make her feel good is not a crime that you commit when the incapacitated woman is a 10, right? It's a crime of power, not of passion. Um, and so I understand to a certain extent the objections to Harvey's read of the film, but I think throwing him under the bus is journalistically criminal. Um, it's just, it's a completely bizarre thing to do. And I tried to ask Variety about this. Um, I, you know, I had an off the record conversation with, um, you know, one of their, like an outside PR person who was doing his job, but asked them a series of questions. Like, did you have a conversation about the apology with Dennis Harvey before you ran this? Um, is there an established standard for how you're going to look at reviews that talk about actors' faces or bodies? And just, they wouldn't talk to me about it. Um, you know, and if you, if you have an existing in-house rule that says, you know, we don't talk about like actors' physicality and whether they're right for the role or actors' faces and whether that makes them plausible for the role. And this had somehow gotten past an existing dragnet. Like maybe there would be grounds for an apology, but even so it's still an insane standard to have. Um, I mean, I, you know, I think I'm probably as feminist as Carrie Mulligan, if not more so. And I think that acting is one of those sort of weird lacunas in the professional world where your your physical appearance has an enormous amount to do with your work. Um, you know, if you cast Chris Hemsworth as like currently like jacked up Thor style Chris Hemsworth as like a consumptive poet in Victorian England, like I would think you were crazy and that you didn't know anything about the nature of consumption um, as a disease. You know, if you, you know... <sighs> If you cast Arnold Schwarzenegger as like an everyday dad who's just married to an everyday woman hanging around Washington, D.C., and he like sells vacuum cleaners, <laughs> which literally actually is what James Cameron did. I yeah, think he was a vacuum yeah. cleaner salesman with his cover. Like that, yeah. And there was a whole bunch of like there were people who were, I think, correctly saying Arnold Schwarzenegger at the peak of Arnold Schwarzenegger's biceps. Yeah. Like it's it's but, whether or not you like this movie, he, it's he's completely it's like, it's not thing. believable as like ordinary dad because he freaking looks like Conan the Barbarian. Well, and and it's funny that Alyssa mentions Chris Hemsworth, who was famously a computer hacker in the movie Black Hat, and I saw I saw numerous people saying like I don't buy Chris Hemsworth as like the the you know super computer hacker. Yeah, he's not skinny uh, and pasty enough. He clearly spends too much much too he, much time at the gym, and not nearly enough time. Like learning to learning to code, which yeah. I think we're also I, not allowed to say. Uh, I don't know. I mean, Alyssa. I mean, I, I I thought your piece in the Washington Post was was dead on. Uh, just about the the idea that we are supposed to suggest that it is impossible to talk about uh, an actor or actress's appearance in in their work is nuts. I mean, it just it that's not how that's not how art works. Yeah, and I think I mean. You know, I got a lot of responses sort of quibbling with the review and, uh, you know, the initial Dennis Harvey review. Um, and I just wanted to say to all of them, like, separate out whether you think his opinion is right or wrong. He's someone who's being paid to have an opinion. And his, you know, his opinion about her sort of plausibility in the role or how she plays it is within the realm of of acceptable things to have an opinion on. You know, art is not... There is not an objective truth, right? You know, movies are not objectively good or bad, um, with the exception of Southland Tales, which is a masterpiece. And anyone who disagrees <laughs> with me is, you know, 
Uh, somebody uh, somebody checking out the new Arrow set? It's your Snyder cut. Uh, yes, Southland Tales is my Snyder cut. Um, someday on this podcast, I will tell the story of how I forced my husband, who I was not then dating, to watch Southland Tales at midnight on a weeknight and reader. He married me anyway. Um, but, you know, movies are not good or bad. Actors are not, you know, easily assigned to a numerical scale on looks. You know, you have to make your best case. And again, you can argue that Dennis Harvey did not make his best case against the casting of Mulligan here. But he is a critic. He is paid to have opinions. And if you don't want to be in the opinions business, like Variety is a trade publication, right? Like what it does is it reports on the news of the entertainment business. And one of the things that it does as a corollary of that is run film reviews. But it doesn't have to do that if it doesn't want to be in that business, right? I mean, if what you want to be in the business of is running actors on actors roundtables and some very good investigations of screwed up things that go on in the movie business, that can be your core business. That's fine. You don't have to be an opinion publication. But if you're going to run opinions, you have to defend the right yeah. of your critics to have opinions. Yeah. Uh, I mean, this is this this gets to really the crux of the issue for me, Peter, which is that Variety makes its money during award season by selling for your consideration ads. That that is that is a key portion of a variety's business. And what what is really grating about this and what again I find I find totally I find totally baffling that nobody is willing to uh, come out and forcefully condemn this, except for like Richard Rushfield and 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 Robbie Cullen and 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 me and and Alyssa. Maybe you, Peter, will see if you if you tow the line properly. But the the but what is what is what is so glaringly obvious here is that they are rushing to uh to try to uh, apologize and soothe the feelings of a a an actress that is in a film that is going to be two varieties mind. A, a key part of the award season conversation. I mean, it, it, like it, it, it wasn't just it wasn't just the uh, the language and the apology, which again I just find so debasing. The uh, you know the that minimized her daring performance. Oh, yeah. Come on. I, and come on. I will. I did ask Variety. I was like, is there a category of sort of sociopolitically important performance that cannot be criticized again no answer yeah. but like that's what it implies yeah but so anyway so like on top of this then you have variety putting out an exclusive uh uh a PDF of the promising young woman's script. Um, their awards circuit uh, uh, writer puts promising young woman in the the you know ten most likely best picture nominees. I just like I find this I find this all so uh, so so horrifically bad on just a number of journalistic malpractice levels. And I'm curious to get your take as an editor. Peter, uh, in addition, uh, as a critic, you know, how, what what do you what do you think when you see all this happen? I think it's it's outrageous. I completely agree. Um, it's it's absurd. And it really just is a reminder of the uh, the sort of the incentive problems that have long existed with publications that exist nominally to serve readers, but really just exist to serve advertisers. And ultimately, Variety is, uh, first of all, we should probably we should probably lay some groundwork here. The trade publications are not in uh, the greatest shape right now. Um, they, are have, they really do have uh, like kind of precarious finances. And so they are, I think, understandably concerned about that. And so that means they have to serve the people who pay their bills really well. And the people who pay their bills are the studios and the movie, uh, the distributors and the movie makers, you know, the, the, the filmmakers, the, the, the film industry who buy big ads in their pages. 
And so that means they're not in the business of reader service. They're in the business of advertiser service. And one of the things I think that it is, is notable about, say, Richard Rushfeld and you, Sonny, right, um, is that you are you're you're, you're subscribers uh, driven, right? Like Substack puts yep. journalism back, right? It means that like you have to serve readers. Now there are, you can say, some some incentives maybe built in there that are not ideal either, right? Like you can say uh, that somebody might just sort of end up doing intense narrow casting and just to, to but you know, in, in ways that just sort of like hitting the same beats over and over, right? Kind of beating dead horses. Um, uh, though, but I think Substack is great, and I think this is one of the things that it has done really well. Um, the Washington Post, I, I should probably note here, has really turned toward uh, toward a subscription model over the last couple of years, and has really sort of reoriented its business. Reason Magazine, where I work at my day job, we are primarily you know funded by readers and a community of people who who we right. We're not an advertiser driven publication, though we do have some ads. Um, we're a nonprofit, and that changes what you can say, and it changes the incentives and varieties in a very different place. I think, though, that for for Variety to do this and then maintain that it is a publication in the business of offering unvarnished um, and honest takes about film is just it's untenable. It's completely untenable, even if they only do it once, frankly, because this is going to exert a chilling effect across critics for years now and we will not know what sentences don't get published what things that critics think that they might want to say that they now feel they cannot say because who wants that kind of editor's note to be attached to their piece who wants to be sort of uh, edited like that after the fact for something that wasn't that wasn't a, it's one thing to like correct an error this was not an error right. and right. variety is not representing this as an error um well they're, what, they're representing it as an error of thinking yes they're literally yeah. representing as, it as, wrong as a thing. as a like bad, bad thing, thing. But, yeah, but, no, and, but this goes back to you know this goes back to the this other thing or you know uh, which is what Alyssa said which is that we have to be able to judge actors looks actors are bodies they refer to their bodies as their instruments right that's what they're playing is their instrument and and to say that you kind of can't, that you can't, I mean, frankly, I, I don't think he called uh, Mulligan ugly. I don't think that's what he did. And no. I think that's a that's a mistake to read it that way. No. But it should be okay to say that an actress is ugly, to say that an actress is doesn't look right for a role, is, is unfit for a role, or brings the wrong visual vibe to a role in the same way that it should be okay to say that a cinematographer's photography is ugly. Like, that's a matter of judgment and a matter of opinion. And hopefully you have a, you can back that up with some arguments, right? But film is a visual medium. It's a thing that you look at. And oftentimes film wants to be, wants to be pretty. Um, and it wants to be beautiful. And you need to be able to say as a critic, this element of the film, this thing that was engineered for me to look at either works uh, or doesn't. It is either beautiful or ugly, and that changes the way I perceive the film. And what Variety has said is that, at least in some instances, which they are not going to outline any sort of rules or clear guidelines on, we are gonna we're gonna make it off limits for critics to exercise that judgment. And that means that critics can no longer do the essential work of criticism, which is to offer arguments about what works and what doesn't in film. You know, this is a this is a, a little bit of an esoteric conversation in in the sense that it is something that film critics I think are probably a little more concerned about than than average readers. Uh, but I, I will say that I'm I am 
I am very surprised at the muted response to this uh, on social media. This is this is a this is a uh, you know a community that spends all day being angry about stuff. Film Twitter uh, for the most part. So I'm curious and, about how Alyssa thinks about this because I think there's a really clear reason for that, and that's that this is a film about this is a progressive sort of left leaning film about. Uh, it's sort of a, a, a making a kind of feminist argument that that the male gaze is bad, right? No. And that and that men uh, treat women as as sex objects, and it's and that sort of thing. Um, and like you know, I I had some issues with the film, but I also I gave it a thumbs up. I think it's 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 a, a really kind of a remarkable and strongly made film. Even if I again had some you know some sort of uh, frustrations with the way it goes about representing its particular issue. Um, and this wouldn't have happened if the if it had been an offhanded remark about, let's say, even uh, Rami Malek in the little things which we're about to talk about. Who I think, Sonny, in your review, you said he sort of he was kind of miscast. He has he, you, yeah. you argue that he look has right. he has the wrong look. look. Right I totally yeah. disagree with you. By the way, yeah. I think he has okay. he has well, a wrong, fascinatingly like that's weird fine. like a weirdly interesting look. But I can yeah. see your point and. Nobody's well, going to complain when 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 Sonny Bunch or even when the Variety critic says uh, Rami Malek looks wrong for this role, but yeah. somebody's going to complain because this is perceived as an attack on a feminist ideal, and so this is this is not it has become an argument that is even though on the surface it's about art criticism, no, actually it's just about politics, and even worse than that, it's about politics and advertisers. At the bottom, and I'm sorry, I, 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 a little bit of a rant there, but I I'm actually curious whether Alyssa sort of sees that the same way, or if I'm missing something there. Well, I think there's a really, there's something really interesting going on here because I think Promising Young Woman is a feminist movie, um, and is it sort of an interestingly spiky, uncomfortable bit of feminist storytelling? Um, but Hollywood in general. I think often weaponizes politics, right? And so, you know, a just because a movie is feminist um, or it sort of uses and engages with feminist politics doesn't mean you can't argue about its feminism, about the, you know, its vision of gender politics and gender equality, how successfully it plays with the tropes that it's working with, et cetera. And that should mean that you can have a substantive conversation with its stars, right? I mean, about what feminism is and what constitutes it and where the lines are and to what extent an industry that is built on sort of replicating a society-wide vision of what is beautiful can ever be sort of a vanguard in this particular kind of politics. But I think part of what bothered me about this is that, you know, Mulligan made these remarks, um, you know, while, you know, a while ago and, you know, mentioned them in this, mentioned the review in this uh, profile that the New York Times did. And there was not sort of pushback or argumentation around that then, right? I mean, the Times is doing a fairly typical celebrity profile. Um, and, you know, it is very common in you know when actors yeah, I don't are think there's out, anything really wrong with the times piece and she obviously has the right to complain about a review yeah right like absolutely, that, that's yeah, absolutely. Totally. and there's but, nothing wrong with that but it is very common for actors who are promoting these sort of fairly important 
you know, or movies that want to be seen as important to, to kind of take up the cause themselves. Um, you know, I, when Bradley Cooper was um, doing American Sniper, he came to the Center for American Progress where I was working at the Times and we did like a big event on mental health with him. But I think that part of what is sort of tricky and spiky about this is that Mulligan, who I think, you know, genuinely has feminist politics, raised a sort of feminist objection to the response to this feminist movie. And that became a sort of thing that it was impossible to argue with, right? I mean, rather than sort of striding forth to do intellectual battle or contest that statement, um, the movie's feminism became kind of a, you know, it almost exerted this like slick protective shield over Mulligan. So nobody could really engage with that argument or engage with her about it. Um, and I think it's created a very weird circumstance where there has been this kind of conflation of actor movie statement itself. Um, and so to quibble with the statement is to quibble with the movie, even though that shouldn't be true at all. And in fact, the sort of spiky, very, you know, sort of distinct sensibility of the movie um, should be sort of an invitation to quibble and debate, right? I mean, this is meant to be a sort of polarizing, provocative um, look at feminism and what one woman's, you know, fight against misogyny leads her to do to herself in her life. I mean, that should be something that is open for debate. The stars embrace feminism should be open for debate. And instead, there's been this just incredibly deferential response embodied most obviously by the variety piece. Um, but, you know, I, I think that if you want to take Hollywood stars embrace a political position seriously, then the greatest respect you can show them is to contend with them and push back rather than, you know, just sort of saying, oh, it's so sweet that you're, you know, standing up to sexism, you know, like, aren't you cute? Let's not quibble with this. Let's move on. I actually think that the the sort of extremely deferential reaction to Mulligan's complaint about this review um should be something that she's she sees as insulting, not affirming. Uh, um, so yeah, I, I know we probably need to, to get onto the next segment, but before we go, uh, since we have been so hard on Variety here, um, I will I, I want to say something that's not so much in defense of Variety, but in defense of kind of the the underlying impulse, which is that we don't need to to like delve into it in great detail here, but there is in fact a long history of mo of male movie critics offering like essentially lookist critiques of female acting yeah. and and that like it's i think this has really died down in the last 20 years certainly in the last 10 but if you go back and read movie criticism from the 1960s through the 1980s there's just a bunch of like male critics writing as if the primary job of female actresses is to look appealing to them and that's what makes them either good in the movie or bad in the movie. And that's not at all what was happening here. But there is this lingering sense that that is a thing that happens in criticism written by men and that it's a problem. And I agree, it's a problem. And if that was what was happening, I think I, I don't think I would have said that the, the particular way that Variety went about this was appropriate, but I would have been a little more sympathetic. And I admit to being at least a little bit sort of sensitive towards that that impulse. And there's a potential great irony here that Dennis Harvey is, I believe, gay. And so yes. yeah. there is there's a possibility that all of this comes out because he is sort of misinterpreting how a heterosexual male audience will respond to someone who he is in fact like, you know, 
temperamentally not ever going to be sexually attracted to under any circumstances. Yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah. It's all. Just- yeah. I mean, I, 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 to, to Alyssa's point, I do think one, one thing that this whole little uh, conversation kind of highlights is there, there is, there is, uh, there is an enormous lack of in ideological diversity, let's say, in the world of film criticism. Um, not on this podcast, of course, uh, but but in the in the world of film criticism in general. And I think a little bit more of that would perhaps lead to a little more pushback on nonsense like this. All right. So what do we think? Is it a controversy or a controversy that Variety apologized to Carrie Mulligan for uh, an innocuous line in a largely positive review? Alyssa. It's a huge controversy. Peter. Controversy. Enormous controversy. Variety should be ashamed of themselves. Uh, speaking of subscriptions, uh, if you enjoy this show, and, and who doesn't, it's great. Uh, make sure to head over to atma.thebulwark.com, where we'll have a bonus members-only episode about Reddit saving AMC by pumping up movie theater stock. Uh, this is, uh, this is as Peter says, this is a subscription-driven enterprise for the most part. And if you if you subscribe, we get to keep doing it. So I hope everybody does. We're here uh, to make now, a podcast for you. I'm not I'm not selling AMC advertisements here folks. I'm not selling Reddit advertisements or Robinhood advertisements. You got to you got to shell out your money. Keep us going. Uh, all right. Now on to the main event. This week we are reviewing The Little Things. It's the first movie from Warner Brothers uh, 2021 slate to debut on HBO Max and in theaters simultaneously. We can talk a, more, a little bit more about that in a minute. Um, uh, but before we get started with everything, I just I just want to offer up a spoiler warning. Uh, if you haven't seen The Little Things and would like to, and you don't want to be spoiled, please stop listening now because I personally plan on discussing the entirety of the picture, including the ending. I don't know about my co-hosts here, uh, but I, I I think there's something very interesting going on in this movie. Uh, that I would like to discuss, but you can only really do it if you talk about the ending. So, spoiler warning. Uh, Denzel Washington stars as Joe Deacon, a one-time hotshot LAPD detective who now works out in the sticks because one case got under his skin a bit too much. Deke gets wrapped back up in that case uh, after he goes to L.A. on an unrelated matter, helping current hotshot LAPD detective Jim Maxter, played by Rami Malek, uh, track down some old leads. The two eventually settle on Albert Sparma as their guy, and he is played with an unsettling, wide-eyed oddness here by Jared Leto. Uh, Sparma, with a paunch and a limp in an apartment filled with clippings about the killings, certainly gives off serial killer vibes. Uh, But is that vibe correct? Is he their guy? John Lee Hancock wrote and directed the throwback serial killer movie, and if you're wondering uh, why exactly it's set in the 1990s, just know that it was because it was written in the 1990s, and it's been sitting in a shelf for years now. It's just been in his drawer waiting to be pulled out for the right time. Uh, fans from this period of Denzel's career, the 90s, will will remember when he was playing cops hunting serial killers in movies like Virtuosity and Fall and Fallen and The Bone Collector, uh, and they, they might find the little things a little bit familiar and a little bit entertaining. What I found most interesting about this picture is it is in large part a deconstruction of the serial killer picture from this era. It's about cops chasing their hunches and killing innocent people as a result. Uh, The language of the film is pretty clear on this. Sparma, with his limp, uh, is not the killer we see in the opening moments chasing a woman uh, uh, who gets away. And the cover-up of his killing is intercut with a previous cover-up by Deke, who accidentally shot an innocent woman and blamed it on the serial killer he was chasing. Uh, The Little Things, then, is something quite interesting, and despite its early 90s, setting kind of timely it's an all cops are bastards movie it's it's a it's a movie uh about cops who are utterly convinced in their righteousness killing innocent people uh, in the name of protecting society 
Um, again, kind of interesting. Peter, uh, am I wrong here? What did you make of the little things? I quite liked it. Um, I'm not sure I loved it. Um, it's it's a really interesting film, though, and I think the uh, the negative reviews have been just really way too hard on this. I mean, I, I will say the first thing that I liked about it was just this is a big studio movie that feels like the kind of big studio movie that I used to see pretty regularly. Um, even in the age of, of superhero films, there was a movie kind of like this with a big star and it was like aimed at adults, but it was genre film and a little bit elevated and like it was pretty good, but not quite great. Had some good ideas, not all of which totally worked, needed maybe a little bit more development, right? Some backstory. There's like Oscar winners doing kind of Oscar-y performances in it, though it's coming out in January, which, yes, this year is weird, but like normally is the dumping grounds for, for films that didn't quite work and the studio knows it. Um, so there's, there's just something enormously comforting about watching a movie like this. Uh, as to your point about what it's doing with cops and the serial killer genre, I think Zodiac does a, a, a much better job of kind of painting the uh, unknowability and the frustration with sort of finding killers and sort of, you know, resol finding resolution at the end of these things. Um, but you're right. This is a movie about bad cops. I guess I sort of look at it and I think that's really interesting. It's it is a movie that tries to that sort of says that in the end that the the killer here and the, like the satisfaction that you're going to get from finding the guy who did it that's not what i want to talk to you about what i want to talk to you about is the fact that that drive for satisfaction leads people to bad places and if those people are cops with power they're going to they're going to do bad things and then they're going to get away with it um one one thing, uh, just to interrupt, it, the the thing I really liked about this is that they're bad cops who are not portrayed as yeah. bad people. They're not raving bigots. They're not, you know, yeah. uh, like they're not obviously wicked people. They're just they're just kind of bad. at their So job. this is sort of where I'm I guess I'm a little uncomfortable is I think the movie is ultimately just a little too sympathetic to its police characters, not to say that it shouldn't have that it shouldn't be able to sort of show us their perspective. But I think the movie ultimately doesn't want to cast too much judgment on them. They are they are people who we're in some ways supposed to relate to. Now, I get that, right? And I, I that is an interesting choice. I'm not sure it's the best one, though. And I think the movie kind of doesn't quite know whether it wants to be an indictment of them or whether it wants to say, you know what? Wouldn't you do the same? It's pretty understandable. I don't think it's an indictment of them at all. It ends with Denzel Washington, like, sending Rami Malek's character a piece of fake evidence so he'll feel less bad about Right, to give him the satisfaction that Washington didn't get when he right. killed someone. Yeah. Right, right. It's it, this is again this is this is actually what I find really interesting about it Alyssa. I'm glad I'm glad you mentioned this because I think it like it is about it is about it is about bad cops who are trying to make themselves feel better about being bad cops. Like I you don't find that interesting? I find that really interesting. It's also kind of Alyssa, trying you... to make the viewers feel okay or at least see I don't these think things. It, no, what? No, I don't think it is trying to make the it would it would be trying to make the the audience feel okay if we didn't see uh, uh, Denzel throwing away the other barrettes and making it obvious that this was a piece of fabricated evidence. I, I'll argue with you in a minute here. 
Alyssa, what did you make of the movie? I have to be honest. I found this almost narcoleptic. Um, I nodded off during <laughs> And I say this as someone who, like, Zodiac is one of my favorite movies. I have probably watched Zodiac 10, 15 times. Um, so I like talky, unresolved cop movies about serial killers. Like, I like them a lot. And yet, this just did really next to nothing for me. And I should say, I mean, I like Denzel Washington a lot. Just like watching Denzel Washington do things with his face on screen is an extremely enjoyable experience because he has such a wonderfully expressive face um, that he knows how to sort of hold and reserve. Um, He uses his body really interestingly, especially as he's gotten older. I mean, seeing him go from sort of sad sack to someone who's sort of more confident and engaged is really interesting. But I think that this weird, this is a movie that would have benefited from a lot more specificity and a lot more use of its supporting cast. I mean, you have these sort of interesting tensions here, right? Like, um, you know, Remy Malek's character, again, Jim, I think, I again, I found this movie so unmemorable. Um, you know, is someone who seems to be like very clean living, like very religious, interestingly. And, you know, the movie says this and then does nothing with it. Um, he also lives in this like incredibly nice house for a Los Angeles cop. It makes no, like that swimming pool makes no sense at all, um, even with overtime. I'm sorry. Um, hey, it was the 1990s. Housing costs were low. <sighs> It's true. If you notice, he, he the kitchen did have uh, just a, it was a tile kitchen, right, rather than granite or whatever, because because that was what a nice kitchen was in 1990. Okay, but so you know we don't get any sense of you know any of these supporting characters. It's a total bummer because you have um, this corner played by Michael Hyatt, who most of you will know as Brianna Barksdale on The Wire, um, who you know she's just a fantastic actress and like is reduced to someone who did this cover-up for reasons that, like, nobody really knows anything about. We don't get any sense of, you know... She did it because that's what cops do. That's what cops do for each other. Yeah, but, like, none of these characters are people at all. I mean, it's just, it's so, you know, every, like, the opening sort of, you know, chase serial killer stalking prey scene is, like, well done, but it's, like, every single one of these, right? It's, like, oh, we're, like... That you know, the girl is singing to like a piece of sort of specific period music that like you'll probably recognize because it's like it's meant to be specific but not too obscure. You know, you have the lights in the background. I mean, it's just it's like it is just assembled of cliches. And maybe this was fresh when it was written in the 1990s. Like, I would have been really interested to see the version of this that Clint Eastwood directed in 1995. But you know, it's it's a situation where it's like it's. It's like, you know, having seen all of these riffs on fairy tales and then reading the Brothers Grimm for the first time. It's like, you know, theoretically, this is sort of something that was like back at the wellspring, but it doesn't actually feel that way at all. I would have been Um, curious to see the Spielberg version. He was also attached, which definitely would have chickened out and just given us a killer at the end and been very clear about it because Spielberg absolutely cannot cannot it, it, it would have had the equivalent of like the really sad eric Bana sex scene from munich uh so i i want to it's funny because i don't actually love this movie and i i actually agree with you Alyssa, that it is kind of it is dull in 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 extended uh sequences and in, in in parts of the film but the the one thing i would like to take issue with here is the the uh, the kind of generic nature of that opening scene a it, it like really is the best put together scene in the movie i think yeah. just to, in terms of like the effectiveness of 
it's it's it being a thriller and a chiller but it is incredibly generic but again i think that that is important to the point that is being made here which is that this is a this this movie is breaking down every single film that has a cop who has a hunch about a killer because having a hunch is not proof and having a hunch gets innocent people killed not just sparma but also the the guy that denzel has them bring in the first time who they say you know uh, uh blew his head off with a shotgun like the, the 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 these cops are getting people killed via their hunches and it's it is it is again uh doing this within the the format of the genre that it is critiquing which is why i think the like kind of generic nature of that opening scene works I don't there's know. this great bit um right after jared leto's character kills sparma uh in which denzel washington has driven away where he's gonna rami go, malik's r- character r- 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 i'm sorry in which rami, rami malik's character has killed. has killed sparma denzel washington has driven away and comes back and you see this like crane or, or drone shot from above and there's all of these holes that they've dug because, of course, Sparma has brought them out to the location where he's promised to show them the body of a missing girl. And they've just dug and dug and dug and dug and dug. Um, and it was it's clear Sparma did that to mess around with them. He's not the killer, but they kept they couldn't they kept at, like holding on to the hope that he was. And so they exerted themselves or at least Rami Malek's character exerted himself so much. Right. To just sort of to in an effort to to find proof that he was the killer that this that this girl's body was out there it wasn't it just wasn't and i think it's again it's not that the movie is perfect or sort of it or is is some kind of great film um i think it has some flaws but that's a really interesting idea to have not just as a sort of a moment but as essentially that's the resolution to the murder mystery that's what we find out is that they're never going to find out that there isn't well, the an answer and that the only answer that anyone ever gets is the lie that Denzel Washington tells Malik's character. No, the answer that we get is that the killers are the cops. Like that that, that again the little things. One of the Denzel the actually I think says it's the little things that get you. And he knows cuz he has experience covering up murders. Yeah. I mean it like it, it this is a movie this is a movie where we do find out who the killer is and it well, we find is out Denzel the, Washington and Rami Malek. Who the yes, we find out who killers are uh, who who two killers are. Yeah. Um but not who the killer of the young woman in question is um but uh, I mean it is interesting the way that opening shot just uh, you know uh, that it makes a connection then between the the other two characters because it focuses in the opening sequence it focuses on the killer's boots and then one of the things that the movie consistently does in sort of a small and unshowy way is to zoom in on the shoes and the feet and the stepping of the two detective characters because it is trying to draw a link between its detectives and the serial killer who they are nominally chasing but one thing I would say, you know, I mean, Sonny, you pointed out this is sort of timely in the sense that it focuses on the fact that, you know, the cops are bad, they're killing people. But it makes, I think, sort of the same mistake that some of the conversations about police reform do. Um, is that it focuses on the bad things that police officers do, but it shows next to no interest in the people who are left behind when there is, when a terrible violent crime happens. And... You know, if the if the call one thing I think is very interesting about conversations about policing and police reform is that, you know, all, the three of us, a lot of the young folks our age who are leaders in this, um, you know, in Black Lives Matter, in the movement to defund the police, 
What we have in common is that we were not old enough to really remember the mid-century crime wave. Um, you know, Peter, you and I live in a city, you in particular, that was just considered unlivable by a lot of people for a long time in the, um, in, you know, the middle of the last century. And the truth is, like, crime, the police exist for a reason, right? Like, the police don't exist because, like, having a carceral state is fun, although um, there's sort like there is a strong desire to sort of discipline and incarcerate people. But the police exist because the repercussions of crime are really serious and crimes need to be solved. And a huge amount of the sort of tension over crime and policing um, that developed after the mid-century crime wave was that crime got worse and the police got worse at solving it. Um, you know, the crime rate went up and the clearance rate for serious crimes went down and has stayed down in a lot of ways. Um, and so the little things gets right that the police aren't solving crimes and important crimes, crimes where people really need some closure, but it doesn't really deal with what that means to anyone other than the police. And, you know, the girls who are murdered by this guy have families and the movie is just not interested in them at all. Um, you know, it's interested in what it means for, you know, Jim Baxter to meet the family of one of these girls, but it is just not particularly interested in the fact that not solving crimes has an enormous impact on people and it's bad, right? Like murderers yeah. should be caught not just because they might go on to murder more people, but because the people who are left behind when someone is murdered deserve to understand what happened to the person who they loved. And, you know, I think that is just a lacuna in the conversation and it's a lacuna in this movie and in frankly, like tons of cop and serial killer pop culture. And, you know, something like Netflix's Lost Girls, um, which I thought was, is not a great movie, um, but at least, you know, it was really clear about, you know, returning crime victims' families to the position of being the protagonists of their own stories. Um, and that made it a lot more refreshing and just interesting to watch than this was for me. So it's it's funny I like I'm I'm taking this 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 tack with this movie uh, because I am probably the most pro police person in this in this podcast and in this conversation. Uh, the the a, a, an antidote to this uh, what you're talking about Alyssa is uh, the the Netflix uh, docu series that dropped a couple of weeks back uh, on Richard Ramirez, uh, I think it's called Night Stalker: The Hunt for a Serial Killer. Uh, they they that that is entirely focused on the cops and also the victims and the the people who the Night Stalker left behind. It like makes a very pointed uh, uh, effort to essentially avoid glamorizing Richard Ramirez in any way. He's he's not even uh, mentioned by name until. Uh, the, the right at the end of the third episode, it's a four episode docu series. Um, so I, I like it that that again a, a movie that's or a show that's much more uh, pro police than this one. Um, but yeah, I mean, I like I, I I think it's I don't know I I uh, I'm I have I have so many I have so many issues with with the little things and just like how. Uh, some of the performances work and how, you know, the, the pacing of it and all that. But I do think it is trying something interesting and it's doing something that is not really getting picked up on a lot in the the uh, the cultural and critical conversation surrounding it. Would you say that there are a lot of little things that you like? Ah, uh, boo. Terrible. 
Uh, Peter, you were going to defend Rami Malek's casting in this. Please do, because he, he doesn't work. He's the only thing in this movie that doesn't really work. I think uh, he totally works. He's, he looks to weird and out of place. And he's trying to be... But he's not supposed to look weird and out of place. He's supposed to be the hotshot uh, guy who's got it. He shouldn't be Ryan Gosling or like... Uh, I don't know somebody somebody like kind of blank and 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 stoic instead of like weird and twitchy who devolves into weird and twitchy I, by film's end I mean I, I I think the point is that he's that he's not comfortable in this world um and that they he is in some sense a little bit out of it and he's he's twitchy from the beginning and he has he's got he sort of surrounded himself with um with the pretense of of fitting in, right? All these nice suits and the press conferences and having all the answers and he doesn't have the answers. And it turns out that that, that self image is, is fake is constructed and it comes completely apart. But again, I think the sort of lack of characterization, you know, or really sort of specific exploration of who he is. And I think especially, you know, if he is present, especially if he's presented as someone who's supposed to be, you know, a believing Christian in a way that's really important to his identity. The movie just does nothing with that when there would have been, I think, just interesting stuff to explore there. Um, I agree. It's underdeveloped. Yeah. All right. So what do we think? Thumbs up or thumbs down on the little things? Alyssa. Thumbs down. Peter. Thumbs up, actually. Like, qualified, but I think it's it's better, certainly better than its critical reputation. It's worth watching. Uh I will also give it a thumbs up, uh, a qualified thumbs up, most, m- mostly positive thumbs up. Uh, all right, that is it for today's show. If you loved it, uh, make sure to check out our members-only bonus episode about AMC being saved by Reddit uh, and the memes of Redditors at atma.thebulwark.com. Uh, and make sure to tell your friends. A strong recommendation from a friend is basically the only way to grow podcast audiences. And if we don't grow, we'll die. If you did not love today's episode, please complain to me on Twitter. I love to hear from folks. I'm at Sunny Bunch. Uh, I will convince you that it is, in fact, the best show in your podcast feed. See you guys again next week. <laughs>